moved here and I like, you know, you'd have a whole check of how much money, like how far money actually goes. Cause for some reason I was like, Oh, I remember when I was younger, my friend was like, my mom makes 80,000. That's like so much money. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's like, she's like loaded. Mm-hmm. Like that was us when we were like 16. Mm-hmm. And then I remember graduating, you look, look at the taxes and the cost of just even getting an apartment, like a crappy one that like you can just live in. It's just like crazy. So even now I, since I started um, like grad school now, mm-hmm. I've still been like, I think my hesitation was always like, like the stress of like, is this going to be worth it? And like, I had to make sure it's worth it for me. Cause obviously like, yeah. my and other that's right. Are- so like, that's I could right. be like, yeah, I'm, is it like, do I, am I willing to do this? Or like, does how much like money, everything like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I finally felt like I was at a place where I'd like, I'm very like content and happy mm-hmm. with like mm-hmm. my goal, my passion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like moving away from like, you know, materialistic things, but also just mm-hmm. like, I think when the pandemic made me think like, do I like being in this apartment? Like, am I happy like, every day? Like, it's just like, you know, little things where it's like, I want to be, I want to be happy every day. That's like my genuine goal. Nice. And, you know, a lot of times it's like, I think I talked to my grandma, she's from Jamaica and she talks about just like, you know, like the simple things and like things that like, you know, I'll talk about my phone or like a sheet, like shoes or like, you know, my cousin will talk about stuff and she just doesn't get it. She's like, Mm -hmm. enjoy like life. Like there's Mm -hmm. so much around you that we don't even look Mm -hmm. at. So I'm in that like space. Mm -hmm. What are you writing about? Do you know? Um, Like for your masters. Yeah. For your. So my goal, uh, I'm not necessarily like sure yet, but my goal right now, my interest, so my interest always has been like art history, mm-hmm. just from when I was younger, I didn't really know where I fit in. Like, I didn't feel mm-hmm. like I fit anywhere. I went to yeah. like a very like homogenous, like private mm-hmm. school work. And, you mm-hmm. know, it, it was normal. I didn't think it was weird. I was just like, I'm just the only one who looks like me is what it mm-hmm. is. Um, there was another person, there was like two other people in my class. There was one kid, he was like half Chinese, um, like half white. And then mm-hmm. I had friend but she, we were just two different skin tones so in my head when you're looking at color like I was like well mm-hmm. I'm not thinking there was any of those people so it mm-hmm. wasn't even like a thing it was just like a color thing mm-hmm. so my mom went to museums she started like you know making me read like books on like African-American like mm-hmm. history American mm-hmm. art I felt like I kind of could find a place for myself yeah. so that was the only time I ever really felt like oh this is like where I fit in in the world yeah so my goal yeah. is just understanding how like in a kind of post-black like mm. society, how mixed race and like racially ambiguous artists like identify themselves and how people like consume. That's their art. fascinating. You know, I um it makes me think. So I left museums a year ago and I'm happy. I'm very happy that I'm not working at museums. I think it was really a slog. It was emotionally a slog. I think that one thing that's so tough about being a person of color in museums is that you're a token you're often like asked to speak for all your race, everybody who's brown, everybody who's not white, you know, like whatever they need at that moment. And I think that's really challenging. I also think it's like, um, it's really hard if you want to be part of a community that you were born into because they want somebody from outside. So I think that's really hard. So I've been working just like for, I work in business now and I, I like it a lot. It's nice to like kind of have that, but I also really do miss collections. And one of the things I really miss is think about the thing that's so different about business is there are, they're just like, there's only a certain kind of uh, metric of success, right? It's how much money you make. It's how many views you get. But there is an emotional connection that we people make to art that we don't have, you don't have a business, right? Like, I remember I did a show, I carried a show where um, there was an artist named Renluka Maharaj, uh, whose family is from Trinidad, I think. I'll have to look it up. I apologize because I don't actually remember. Um, and I have my glasses, so I can't even Google it. Um, but uh, what, what her project was is that she is ethnically um, South Asian or largely South Asian and has no history because people who are indentured servants would have left and largely didn't know where they came from. And so she creates these sort of imagined histories for people. And she makes these beautiful paintings that are combinations of paint and um, app, you know, a, a applique or like, you know, applied materials and photographs. And I was there, I was in a gallery with somebody who was, I don't know, who I don't know what they identified as. They would have been something, you know, some something, I don't know what. Um, but they looked at that artwork and they said, 
oh my god, I've never seen myself in a museum. Oops, sorry. No, it's okay. Um, and it was so shocking to me. And they said, oh my god, I've never seen myself in a museum. And in that same show, there was an artist, uh, Joanne Quinones, who is queer in Puerto Rican. And somebody saw her work and said, oh my God, I've never seen myself in a museum. And then there was a Columbus artist who's, um, she has a mural in the short north. Um, I'm gonna have to think of what her name is. She's a really great mural in the short north. I don't know if I can see it with my, without my glasses. Um, but there was another artist who is African, identifies as African-American. And somebody said, oh my God, I haven't seen myself in the, I just didn't identify myself in the museum. And it was a contemporary show of works that were supposed to be very visually rich. And one of the things I think that is so important about art is that people can make a personal connection if you bring it to them in that way. And I think that's like where museums fail, right? Like we don't necessarily open people up to that. Right, because like we hold ourselves away, we hold hold art away from people. Yeah, I I feel like I mean museums similarly as uncomfortable as they are, and you know, just close to them being like cultural institutions that just mm-hmm. sound closet together. I mean, they just remind me of like art galleries that are also cold. Like the walls feel yes. the same. Like, the walls shouldn't like for a commercial yes. gallery that you know you know all the kind of like things about the art world that are negative that can exist in that space feel very similar to when I go to certain museums. Like I don't, absolutely. like when I'm in, like just even walking through and just this uncomfortable, like I don't feel that way when I go to like, I don't know, a public park, you know, or something. like No, exactly. Yes. And I think like, even I remember my first, my first like fears when I started like interning at like art galleries in New York Mm -hmm. was like not knowing enough or feeling like uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in those rooms. Because, you know, people are also just like, you know, they're, everyone's looking for who's there. They're like identifying mm-hmm. people. Yes. They're categorizing. How important are you? How much money yeah. do you have? Yes. And I think that's the funniest thing is that in that room, someone's trying to figure out like, what's your worth monetarily, influentially. But then in the same aspect, any artist starting or anyone starting, you know, has no like worth in terms yeah. of the monetary value, right? No, it's true. Work. And you don't see the fruits of their labor until they sell a piece and until maybe that piece ends up on like the secondary market. And now that has like some value and it's crazy because even I just recently watched um, the price of everything. Oh, did you? I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. It's, it's good, but it's also just, I think that my, it's, there's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. That's where I was like, interacting. And, and it's funny because it's actually so, I feel like it's very, it identifies the art world completely because it's not addressed in the documentary, the uncomfortability. And from mm-hmm. scene to scene, you see that uncomfortability, mm-hmm. but then like, oh, but like, you know, this person's like, there is juicy work and it's like these random trigger words for like collectors. And then you see the art, you go back to the artist and you see them watching live auctions. And it's just kind of like, they're like, I have no control. And that's literally the whole sentiment is just like, I, and that sucks because if you're in a cultural institution and the art you're looking at and the person who made that art feels can, like lack of control in their own like world and space. And then the viewer does too, is like who, who's in control or who, how am I supposed to feel? And it just makes yeah. things way more uncomfortable. I mean, I just, I, even art galleries, I get like, I don't like always love going into them. I know me too. I know. Like, yeah. Unless I'm writing something and like I, I email the like person ahead. Cause like, I used to work at an art gallery. I used to have to know people's faces. I'd have to like put them to whoever they're going to. Oh, yeah. And it's intense. It's like that person there. And it's like two seconds. Like you can't flinch. You got to be like, it's like. No, you're, you're that's there. right. And that's like not, that makes no sense for a, like, you know, an environment where it's not black and white. No. Like, and you know, it's like I, um, that uh, the, the uh, TikToker from um, Isabella Segolovich, is that her name? Uh, who interstellar is uh, Isabella she last night she tagged me on a video about somebody they had done a hyperallergic article about it who takes old paintings and then paints over them and she asked me to like talk about the value of it the monetary value of it and you know I come out of interpretation anyway so like monetary value is not really something I did when I was in museums but um, what I think is really interesting is that there is no monetary value to anything you know, on some level, until it is purchased, it's worth nothing. Excuse me for a second. 
Yeah. I have teenagers. They just live, they live their lives. Um, <laughs> but um, like until it's purchased, there's no value to it. So like an artist can set any value they want, but if somebody doesn't buy it, it's just not worth that money, you know? And then it only increases in value and it's only purchased if somebody who's a collector believes that it will increase in value very often. Not always, right? People purchase art because they love it, but a lot of times it's all about increasing in value. And to me, the thing that's so hard about that is like it's a speculation market but it's all speculation based on what they think is cool. You know, I think that like on some level, so I studied, I, I didn't study contemporary art. I studied Baroque art, Baroque and Renaissance art. And um, certainly that also has its fluctuations, but because it's been buoyed up by years and years and years of history, it doesn't feel as speculative. You know, and I, I mean, it just might be that I like know it, right? But when I look at the contemporary art market, so much of it is like this sort of speculation. And to me, what's really harmful about it, like I was gonna do a video about the Catalan banana and the person in South Korea eating it, that um, what's really harmful is that people forget that it has value beyond the monetary value. Because that speculation is actually independent of its historic value. And to me, that's what's like, like what you're talking about is like, finding a narrative in an artwork that resembles a narrative that you yourself found empowering is why art exists. When I did that show and somebody walked, all those people walked in and they saw something that meant something to them, that's why art exists. But we yeah. often can't do our jobs because that other art world exists. Yeah, I, I mean, even, I think about this all the time when I tell people that I like, because I freelance write on contemporary African-American art. Cool. Um, cool. And I think this is interesting because one, like, I mean, like for me, right, I am half Jamaican. I identify mm -hmm. a lot with like, Jamaican culture and food, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. there's sometimes Southern, like Black food, I don't culture identify with because it's not mm -hmm. something I grew up with. Right. But, you know, like that's identity within itself in America within being Black. So, you know, when I'm looking at a different artists, I don't know, you know, where they're like, I'm interested in their culture, but because I see like, you know, the like scale of how like where blackness can go. But mm -hmm. people I talk about like what I write on, I always get like, do you like Basquiat? Like that's the first question. And it's just like such an insult. And like, you know, like, <laughs> do you like the one black artist I've ever heard of? <laughs> yeah, like I've never seen like, and I'm always just like, wow. Like that, that like you couldn't find one more person. Like, I don't know. I would be like, did you like? Did, have you heard about this Amy Sherald? She's cool too. I, like, I know. Like, you're like trying to give them new names. Like, you're like, like and let me tell you about this guy Hindley Wiley. He's kind of big now. <laughs> exactly, and it's just it's crazy because like you know like it's like African American art is hot. I remember like it was like 20 like 13 or over 2014. Someone was like, yeah, like you know like African American art is like really hot right now. Yeah, and I was like, do you like say that sentence again? Because that just sounds so uncomfortable. Like it's real, and it's like so who. Who's hot? And I remember when I went to the Brooklyn Museum with my mom, they had um, was a Soul of a Nation exhibition there. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my mom about like the artists and their ages. And I was talking about like um, like Afrocobra in Chicago to her mm -hmm. and like explain mm -hmm. that stuff. And I was like, these people are like grandma's age. Like I was like, these people have went their like there's plenty of people who have went their whole life. I forgot her name, I'm blanking on it. She was a Cuban artist who was living in the Lower East Side. Oh, I know who you mean um, too. I'm also blanking on it. I was just thinking about her. I used to be um, a docent at the Wexner Center. So I remember we had, there was a show. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, she was like 98 when like whatever, when they had the mm -hmm. like footage of her and she was talking about how she's been in that apartment her whole life since she came to America and that she's been just making this art. And now someone discovered her in her eighties. But like she like early, and I just was like, and she was talking about like similar artists. But it's also like, like taste. I mean, like, one thing that really pisses me off, I was saying, I was thinking the other day, an artist that was in a show I curated here in Cleveland, who's a Cleveland, he's from Newark, he grew up in Newark, um, and he came to Cleveland Institute of Art, and then he stayed in Cleveland, and he's an amazing artist. He, I don't know how old he is, let me think for a second, he might be like 60. Um, he's a little bit younger than Renee Green, and um, he is African-American, and uh, did these really cool paper cuts. So he, he is like, 
I, I don't, I don't have, let me, his name is Mark Howard. And he does like things that are sort of like, like he does these paper cuts and then he cuts, he cuts them and then he makes them into paintings that are like, the, but they look like paper cuts and he'll sell the paper cuts. He does paper cuts as well. But one thing that was so frustrating to me about his work is that he's very, very good and very interesting, but he didn't do images of, he's black and he's queer and he didn't do images of trauma. And so now he's had some shows and he's in some collections. He's, at the Cleveland, he's in the Cleveland Museum of Arts collection. Um, so this is his more recent work. Um, here, I can send it to you afterwards. It's really amazing stuff. But like all these people, but here's his um, earlier work. You can sort of see it, but um, but it's the same kind of thing. Like he's just minding his own business in the same place he's lived in forever, and now like you're excited about African American art that isn't about trauma. That's also about you know because now like especially I think after Derek Adams and like now you know now we're like um, you know I was looking up. There's that gallery. Is it Marianne Ibrahim? Is that how you say it in Chicago? Yeah, yeah. and like they're showing artists who are doing like you know, art that's different. You're letting people have another story, you know, <laughs> but that I think to me, that is, that that goes back to the struggle that it, that is art, that there's so many kinds. There's such, there's something for everybody. We just, it's hard to get all of those voices out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I can contribute, like even just, I tell people this all the time, but my like finding my own identity and like you know not thinking about the media's influence and being confident mm -hmm. feeling like mm -hmm. i'm beautiful, feeling like i deserve and i belong in like certain spaces yeah. it's all because i was able to see these like different interpretations of blackness and know that it's not a monolith mm -hmm. and yeah. like that's something that like i mean it takes yeah. people talk about it all the time it takes them 40 years people start wearing their mm -hmm. natural hair or like embracing their mm -hmm. features or and they're like mm -hmm. i love myself because you have to unlearn everything that's shown to us mm -hmm. which sucks because that's what I think about when I think about museums is that those cold spaces are where you know I mean you're taking kids on like museum tours right and that mm -hmm. should be like the space that they feel the most comfortable and welcome in and like it's expressive and they don't and I was just lucky that my mom like loved going to museums and loved mm -hmm. traveling different but I always think like what if I didn't do that what if I had what if that bad museum experience was something that like stayed with yeah me? absolutely in those spaces there's like not a like a space that I'd want to be in it's just it's uncomfortable, but mm -hmm. um, I think you're also lucky. I always feel very lucky. So my family, we were saying earlier, but is um, from the place that was colonized by the Portuguese. Um, and we're a small minority because we were Hindus. We didn't convert to Catholicism. And so I, and like you were saying that you're multi-ethnic, that I think that also if you're a, if you come from a place that has more complications, you're able to see more complications. Because I do think sometimes I talk to people, I was saying at work today, I was talking about the, um, the thing that's happening at the Penn Museum, the, the victims. Yeah, I saw your, I saw your and so I, I like said that, you know, I didn't even, so I, I work like a regular nine to five, right? And so like at lunch or something, I'll make a video and I don't really all, can't say that I spent like a huge amount of time on it. I'll just like do a thing and then I put it up and I don't think about it and usually can't mod comments or whatever. And a couple of people DM'd me um, you know, like really sort of touching things about that. And I, um, and I was thinking a little bit more about it. Uh, and I had known about it because there's that Carol Walker artwork about the Mufami. Um, and um, because I, I actually didn't learn about it in school. I was in school at the time, but I didn't learn about it. Um, and, and I think that works like that. And when I was, when we, when I was at a museum that was showing that Carol Walker, a lot of people told it in a very, I think like non-empathetic way, right? Because they don't have any kind of anything in their background, in their history and their experience that helps them see how traumatic, how like, you know, um, governments, for example, can be so traumatic to really innocent people. And I think that the problem with the art world is to go back to where we were sort of talking about like the, the monetary cost of being in the art world to, for those of us who choose to spend our lifetimes in this that we take you know we take a pay cut we take all kinds of we have to do all kinds of things but the people who come to this with different stories tell the the tell the stories of the art better 
because we're open to things that if you just have a very narrow story, you're just not going to notice. Yeah, I touching on the monetary aspect, I actually think about this often because I I think about artists as a career. Because mm-hmm. when I was little, I thought I'd maybe be an artist. Yeah. Honestly, I didn't. I really thought I should be a doctor or something because in my head, like, I need to like make money. That was the actual yeah. truth. I would yeah. want to be an And I was talking to my mom and I was saying how there's there's a difference between like an artist who's working and develops a career and like someone who doesn't and chooses to become a lawyer, a salesman. Mm-hmm. And it's literally survival. And I was like, when you're yeah. when you have the financial backing, the generational wealth to yep. live, eat, and have transportation, which is yep. a lot of times, I mean, we know like just even in America, like people are doing that every day just to survive. They're not they're not trying to pursue a different career, they're just surviving yeah, off their salary. That you take away half of the people who could even be an artist because they can't because if we're living in a society where every day something costs money and every our value is always Absolutely. like me, then what values an artist have if they're not bringing in money every day if they're not creating value but the thing is that that monetary value happens just like when you know you think about like someone who bought a house for eight thousand dollars and now it's worth like five hundred thousand dollars right and it's like that they had the time to build it up and like that's what they're and that's still that's still happening with like their grandkids are building up their career i have like friends who like i'm figuring out my life like i'm gonna i'm gonna stay home for a little bit and the thing is that when they go home you can always say people can move back home and it's not that people don't have homes but it's a different like understanding absolutely absolutely and just existing there i think that's this most uncomfortable thing when I see artists because I mean when I meet someone I'm like wow like I'm I couldn't do that like I I don't know if I could not know when I'm gonna get paid or when like how my career is gonna go or I'm just kind of figuring it out and I I took a different path I was like I I need a monetary value attached to everything I'm doing because I'm getting charged for literally breathing so I well and I come from totally the opposite like I think like and you know it's funny because um, I always wanted to work in museums and I came from an upper middle class background and I came back. The reason I lived, lived in Cleveland, I worked in Cleveland is because I wanted to work at LACMA and um, I couldn't get an internship there. Um, or I was like up for an internship, but it was unpaid. I wasn't going to, I would have to work all the time. I didn't have a car and I moved to Cleveland because I could move back to my parents' place because I had that privilege. And like, you know, sometimes I think one of the things that I also find really problematic in the art world is that you can't be, a lot of people try to be dishonest about the privilege. If you had it, you had it. You can't like hide it. And I think one thing that I notice is this sort of guilt. Um, like I, I vividly remember this sort of earlier in my career where they'd um, say, well, like, okay, so we're gonna do this outreach thing. You're gonna have to talk to these students about like the Basquiat. They'd be like, they're gonna wanna see the Basquiat. And, I, and I, these students, a lot of city kids who came in who were black could like the Basquiat fine, but they also really wanted to see realism because a lot of, these, a lot of kids came from like the art school and they wanted to learn how to look at realism. Right. And it was this idea that we are embarrassed about our privilege and we're going to guess what what people want rather than being open about your privilege and saying, like, what do you actually want? (laughs) Like, here's some options. Do you want this? Do you want this? It's not that I'm like closing it down for you. You tell me. And I think that so much of the art world is um, this is an analogy, but I, I, I was thinking about this. I was watching a video, I think, or maybe reading an article about Tom's shoes and how Tom's shoes was a really terrible, uh, privileged way to pretend to do good for people because uh, people didn't want those shoes. So they saw that kids were wearing flip-flops and they thought they needed shoes. They, that was what they're missing out on. But in fact, those kids didn't want those shoes. They didn't want shoes anyway, and they definitely didn't want those shoes. And so like these Tom's shoes would be shipped out there and then nobody would wear the shoes. And I think so often about my arts career when I worked in education and interpretation and how often they didn't actually want that. That's not what they wanted. And we were so guilty about our privilege that we couldn't even like admit it and ask and like figure out what you really wanted. I mean, I don't think I always did that, but if like, if we led with privilege, which is what often museums do, that's what you end up doing. Yeah, I think, I mean, I wish there was more transparency in general, which yeah. that's 
that's uh, shot in the dark. But I just like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all back to money, right? Isn't it like so much of the transparency problem is this fear of it's all the scarcity mindset too, like the fear of the loss of money. I um, actually, it's funny. I remember I told my dad this. I was, I think I was going to my senior year. So during undergrad, I like interned every summer back home, like at art gallery or yeah, you know, yeah. art advisor. And I remember I went to this interview for this one gallery in Chelsea. And I remember they just, they, after the interview, it was like a good interview. They said they really liked me, blah, blah, blah. I get home like that night, I get an email from like the lady who like interviewed me and told me that she went, they went with someone else. But she told me full disclosure, they were, the, their parents were like art collectors. And it was, it really was like not hard feelings. And my dad was like, that's the best thing they could ever tell you. Yeah. And I, you know, me and my head, like, I'm like, 20 and I'm just like damn like I really wanted that and yeah. like what did it mean like I was so charismatic my dad's like no they told you that we didn't choose you be because not because of you because yeah. this person is the, like right. a financial decision like yeah person, but you that's can't true. Give and I was like that was nice I would appreciate that way more often because even I mean everything's like an exchange people exchange art like right for absolutely that's the exact thing when you look at the interns at art galleries they're all going to have similar backgrounds because it's yep. like strange. You're, not only are you working there for free, but they have to get something out of it. And Absolutely. it just, the monetary value goes so deep into that. People be like, wow, like the art world's so underpaid. And I was like, yeah, but just even think like what you're paying with, like compensation is just like, people are paying with just yes. like their more like, yes. whole, like person they may know. And it's like, we're going to bank on that. And like, that's yes. their whole reason for being where they are. And I look at like, you know, like, people's linkedins or you know art yeah. galleries or all the names yeah. and i always kind of like humor myself because like it's it's like you don't want they don't want to talk about it and i think it's a lot of like even just like american like culture feels like even like you know just growing up people don't want to talk about hard things but we're just gonna allude to it we're gonna like yeah. kind of just we're gonna, yeah. we're gonna like wink and like just you know you know but like mm, we're not gonna like actually say it out loud because that's uncomfortable and like that's rude which is like Right. And it's also like they've but I do think part of it is like um, sometimes it's like we, we we're smarter than you. Like Daniel Day Lewis's son is apparently an artist. Uh, I don't know what his first name is. Uh, let's call him Ronan. I have no idea what his first name is. And there was an article in like Art News or Artnet about a show he did. And actually, it isn't a bad show. Like, it's, it's not good or bad. It's kind of like in between. He created some, he's like created sort of an alternate, um, like, it's like kind of like fantasy. He created like a creature and then he's put them into these pastels. And, you know, like, I think it's like you would look at it too. Like, if you've seen a lot of art, it's good, but it's not like, um, you know, I, I, I could see it or not see it. I could care less. And, um, uh, I was reading the article and I was like, there's just no way he is not, he doesn't look like his dad. They have a picture of him. He doesn't look like his dad, but he is clearly Daniel Day Lewis's kid. And you, I'm reading the article and they're talking about how talented he is and how, you know, Im how emotive these pastels are. And they are just literally landscapes with a figure like, you know, that I can't remember the name of that um, designer who did the stick figure, the 3d sculpture of a stick figure dog. Um, uh, what was it? Uh, but it's, um, but it's like, it's just, it looks like a, there's like a stick figure creature in it. And it's like in like a landscape. And so it is just not that these, these people are making it sound like the second coming. This guy's show is so amazing. He's so creative, blah, 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 blah. And at the very end, it says, whatever, Ronan or whatever, Dave Lewis, in parentheses, son of actor, and his mother, a filmmaker. And I was like, you know, we could have led with that. Like you are doing this article. You didn't, I mean, like what you're, you're trying to make me think that like you did not write this article because of who he is. Like, you know, it's, and, and the thing for me about it is it would have actually been more honest and I would have liked his work better. But like, I felt fooled. Like, I felt like you were trying to fool me and it made me just like, I might've actually paid more attention to it and so what they do constantly is try to make us try to focus on the work no 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 don't notice that it's Saul Lewitt's daughter you know because like she's an installation artist now and actually I like her work but 
you know, like don't notice that because we're better than you. We don't want you to think too hard about all of the never ending, like layers and layers and layers of nepotism within this industry. Yeah, that actually, that same point is funny. I just heard someone talk about the writer's strike and talk about Nicolas Cage and how people don't know that he's like what Francis Coppola's yeah, or whatever. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's sister's son, I think. So, so yeah, so like, but he changed. Oh no, no, brother's son. So he's he he was a Coppola. He changed. His oh name yeah, yeah. So his, I know that's his original name. Like that's his real yeah. last name, but it's like yeah. changed. Yeah. And people always like, oh yeah, he's a good actor. And this girl who she's like a, a actor in LA. She had a YouTube video just talking about how like we know that you like we like like you're trying to like cosplay right now with your last name, but like we know who you are. So it's like we get it. Like you want to be like I'm a hardworking actor. I started from the bottom. I had nothing, but like. It, it just, it's like, we know, and it, we'd respect you more if we just knew, oh, this was your uncle. So this is how you got like, you know, your foot in the door and this is where you are now. Like, it's just. So his sculpture kind of looks like a white version of that. Okay. Have you seen these at, at like, you know, design within reach or whatever? He made like I, a giant sculpture of that in white. And then he did all these pastels that had it. Yeah, but that's exactly it. They're like cosplaying. But the thing to me is nepotism has been in this world. Like, the, I mean, really like, uh, the first museum, Peel, his son was an artist. Like, you know, like nepotism has been part of the art world since the beginning. And part of like, I mean, um, John Wilkes Booth, he comes from an acting family. You know, his father, his grandfather were actors. Like, you know, like ev- so many of these creative industries came out of uh, hereditary work. Nepotism was part of it. And so hiding from that isn't going to make you better or worse. Like, it's just, it's sort of stupid. Like, and it, and I mean, I guess it's also, I think this part, part of the thing that's so hard for me about the art world is that it's this belief that it's merit and nothing, nothing in a capitalist society is merit alone, right? There's luck, there's merit, there's opportunity, there is, you know, generational, you know, wealth, there's nepotism, there's all of these things. And if you just decide that you're going to pretend like one of those doesn't exist, you're not telling the whole story. Yeah, I, I mean, I, like, like I said before, I love transparency. And I think there was an article actually recently about, um, I think it was on Artnet, it was about like museum professionals going to um, contemporary art galleries. And I just, I saw in my head, like, it just, I don't know, it made sense because I feel like there's that awkward wall up where it's like, we're not going to talk about the salaries, but yep. we're going to accept all this yep. from you. Like, we're not going to talk yep. about what you're handling. It's a, it's crazy to, I mean, even if you're wherever you work at and you're an intern or you're getting underpaid, you're handling things like oh, items it's crazy. That, are, are, that people are valuing at half a million dollars. But it's like, so like that, that just doesn't even add up. Like it doesn't. No, no. And, and, and you know what? Your work could increase the value of that object, right? Like if you think about it, you by installing that work can increase the value. You can, you can, the market fluctuates based on the labor of that underpaid individual. Think about how many preparators are working in this country right now, which is, I think preparators are probably getting paid really underpaid preparators like if people listening to podcasts are people who prepare works of art for installation so they don't they're not conservators they don't get paid the scale of a conservator they get paid below that or like installers you know both are are departments that don't get paid that much who literally (laughs) could destroy a work of art and whose labor installs a work of art so therefore increases its value I actually think the same thing with when I go to the um, Art Institute here of Chicago, mm-hmm. the security guards, most of them are oh, primarily yeah. African-American. And I always think, I always, I, in my head, I always talk to people who are working places. I think that's the yeah, best person. Too. They're going to know everything. And like, why would I, yeah. And it's crazy because like in your, I mean, I don't know how much a security guard is getting paid, but I, I don't think it's. I think the, they've moved to private too. I think that I'm, I'm, I'm not outside. positive. You're going to have to fact check that. But um, I vaguely remember that Artists of Chicago moved to private. So you'll have to double check. But you're right. They are not getting paid, especially because museums, a lot of museums moved away from union. And I don't know about the Artists of Chicago's 
specifically. But many of them did move away from union and went into part-time security so they didn't have to pay full-time rates. Gee, well, it's just crazy because I think about the modern or the modern contemporary art wing yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like their donation from, that was like the five, it was like $500 million. I, I go into that wing. I've been there multiple times. And there's yeah. maybe, I'm going to say, nine security guards in there. Oh, I know. Boarding, and they're it's probably crazy. They must be so stressed. We were. I was there with my daughter's seventh grade class trip, and the I have to tell you, these children. My daughter doesn't go to that school anymore, but it was a very snotty private school, and these kids were some of the worst kids. You've these girls were like so bad, and I had said to them, like, you know what? No backpacks, and all these girls were so snotty. They were just obnoxious. And they all put these, they had those, like those back, those little backpacks that, you know, like school trip backpacks and they all put them on and they were just, and they weren't supposed to have flashes and some of them had flash on their phone or whatever. And um, they were snotty. And honestly, I didn't even feel bad when they got yelled at by the guard, but I said to them afterwards, and then I like took over the tour and I said to them afterwards, I was like, do you understand that this poor person's job is just to ensure that this thing stays for another day? Like this is, you know, like this is just like you're here on a field trip, but this poor person is stuck in this whole floor. And it was, um, it was like, I'm trying to think of what it was, what room we were in when I said it to them, but it was something like Magritte. Like it was something where it was somebody important, like, you know, like where they would know the name. It, I mean, it couldn't have been Magritte because I don't think they would know that name, but like it was something like, oh, maybe it was Warhol actually. I was like, see, like this is by that guy. And I do think like one of the big challenges is also that people don't can't believe that museums would trust you. Like I once installed um, a Magritte and somebody went to touch it. I was like, you can't touch it. It's like a real Magritte. And um, they said, but not the real one. Right. That's in storage. And I was like, no, no, this is like literally the real one. We have no glass on it. Um, and they were very nice about it. And um, but I do think on some level, people's disbelief about the authentic being out for people. Um, but I do think the other thing is people have a real contempt of the sort of the, the like the dirty money of the art world. But you are right about the guards. To go back to your guard thing, uh, I do I, think that you want to say the dirty money? <laughs> uh, actually, what you when you, I what you were just talking about, about just guard, like I was thinking about money and value. Yeah. Or previous before that, but I think you want the guards, art handlers. Um, I mean, even like anyone, the person who's driving the yeah. like. Oh and, my like, God. I've never driven art. I would never. It seems so scary. I've had to transport art in a yeah, Uber. My husband too. And I yeah. just remember wanting to cry the whole oh. entire time, just knowing that I had to get I can't imagine. And I like literally this, this Uber XL driver was the best person ever. I told him the whole, like my whole entire like synopsis of this internship, yes. what I was doing in my life. And he's like, <laughs> we can get through this together. And I was like, I honestly, like I'm going to cry at Chipotle after this. So I really appreciate that. But I think it's like you talk about like value and monetary value. Cause like the person guarding the art is, I feel like as important as the person. Oh, who absolutely. It's crazy, but absolutely. they don't need really monetary value to you know in terms of the art world and what's That's like what right. can really impact but that person can also just spill a whole tomato juice on there like right and but that person also um has enormous value to your visitor i think one of the biggest problems in art museums and one that they do not want to fix and it just makes me angry is um the sort of um the kind of policing in museum galleries you do not need police in museum galleries those guards could be something else. You know, it's like the greeter at, I don't know, Brooks Brothers or, you know, like when you walk in and all those people on the floor, they are actually watching for theft, but doing other things too. And in museums, when so much of what guards are doing is just telling people not to touch things, you could solve that problem in a way that actually made museums feel like open, welcome places, but they don't want to. And I think they don't want to on some level because that paradigm shift is frightening. Yeah, and even if you were to do that, even if like, because I had to unlearn that too going to a museum, I would feel uncomfortable looking at something too long. I'm scared mm -hmm. that someone's like, why are no, you looking yeah, at what you do it? And, and it's crazy because in subconsciously when you have guards doing that, they have to categorize you and go like, is this someone who would touch this piece of work? Is this someone who will like, 
get too close to the work and it sucks because then it has this like another conversation on like within like the art dynamic of someone who is just a security guard they're also mm-hmm. making their assumptions about people who are consuming the art mm-hmm. so it's like oh like that person that person like they would look at that art for that long that makes sense oh why are you sitting here like what like are you okay mm-hmm. are you lost mm-hmm. like I think that's the thing is that I've been to I think I went to um where I was in Maine um visiting some friends mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. museum there mm-hmm. and looking at the sculpture that. and the guard was like oh you guys okay over here you guys good and I was like yeah we're we're fine like mm-hmm. we're looking but it's just like it's a uncomfortability of it's- like uh, yes, it's interesting. I read this book just now that I really enjoyed called Encounterism, I think. And um, it talks about, uh, it was a book that was written, it's a kind of like soft social science kind of, about um, the encounters, those just offhanded encounters people have and how we in society, even though we have more experiences with people, like, you know, there's, we, we maybe see more people in our lifetime than somebody did a thousand years ago. We have fewer like offhanded encounters. Yeah, Encounterism by Andy Field. And, um, but one of the things he talks about is this exact dynamic. And I was, he used a different example. And I wish I could remember what the example was, but it's this thing where you are in a situation where you're not exactly equals and um, you don't know each other and you have to have an interaction. It's deeply uncomfortable because it's not like where you're both in the grocery store talking to each other. And it's not like somebody you've passed into your life, like a museum docent, let's say, and you're talking to them. And so he, he was using, I don't, and I don't remember the example, but he was saying that one of the things that's so hard is that because you're not used to that, there's like no clear rules on how that works. And he, because he was like talking about like, he talks a lot in this book about how part of what's really important about communication and these interactions um, is that you need to know the rules and you need to like have had experiences like that. Cause he starts the book talking about like hairdressers and how some people feel really uncomfortable talking to their hairdresser. They don't necessarily know their hairdresser. But then he goes on to talk about other things uh, like, <clears throat> uh, you know, like making a phone call to somebody and all these other encounters. But I think that that is an encounter the museum never thinks about like how much money do they put into training docents in terms of time i feel like i mean for <coughs> i was doing it i mean just for context everyone who was a docent was either like a grad student or yeah. like undergrad so there was kind of right. this uh, understanding of what was going on um mm-hmm. a lot of the honestly a lot of the training who was, was the head of, can i just ask you can cut this out but who was the head of education when you were at the wexner i actually don't know oh okay I used to know the head of education. She was there for a long time, but oh yeah, well, whoever was there when I was there was there for a while before I was even there. I was oh. um, graduated twenty eighteen. Oh yeah, yeah, she would have left by then. Yeah, um, but it was a lot about how you would talk. Like it was crazy that it felt more so like a acting class. Than... Oh yeah, I taught those for years. And, and it was so interesting because I mean a lot of I mean a lot of undergraduate like art history students mm-hmm. are a little like a little bit more quiet like they talk when they're talking to but they're not like yelling out no, walking it's true. It's true. and so a lot of it was like people trying to be like put your back out and like yes. and I, when you think about it it's the same thing when you when people go into schools they talk about like power posing like you mm-hmm. look like an authority and it's just like mm-hmm. what like why mm-hmm. can't I just because I think that was because you're like excuse me hello can you hear me in the back like this is like a lot of like I'm like this is not the like necessarily environment I want to have I want to like it to be more like so okay actually Side note, I there yeah. was a group of little kids who came to uh uh-huh. center. And I remember it was the best interactions I had like ever at my time there. And I always think about that, mm-hmm. which is why I think about myself when I was little and how I interacted mm-hmm. with art. These little mm-hmm. kids had questions. And there wasn't like, you know, awkward like you know, politeness of like, oh, what's this or excuse me, or you know, it's like we were just all just existing and just, you know, whatever was going on of like, what yeah. is that? What is it happening? And it was just nice because even like when someone, and even when a, someone a security would be like, oh, like, you know, like stay a little bit away. Like, you know, it's fragile. That's the same sentence that I wouldn't mind someone telling me today. Like, yes. and that's, not that that's hard, right. in, in that tone of voice too, though, right? Like you're, you're nice to little kids. I think that that's yeah. part of it. Like you're both in an equally nice experience, you know? I will say this, that I, um, the reason I even do TikTok now uh, is because I have a lot of, 
I was a gallery teacher. That's how I started. And when I was in grad school, they paid us by the talk. And so I needed to make money. So I would take every talk. Like I was like, okay, well, I'm in grad school. I have to read anyway. I'll just read all the exhibition catalogs. I'll do all the things. And so I taught all the time. And it was exactly that. Like I would say I went into art history probably uh, as much for the words as the, the art. You know, a lot of art historians really go into it because they love text. Text about art, but you still like really love text and theory and um, and so I, I would have probably been just perfectly happy writing papers, but they paid me by the talk. And so I became very capable of speaking, like basically public speaking, which is what teaching art history in museums is, right? Because like, you're never in a closed room, you're in a gallery and somebody's going to show up and you could be teaching a kid, you could be teaching a senior, you could be teaching, you know, I don't know, somebody just walked off the street and somebody else will walk in. And I was just saying to somebody the other day, I was at CMA where I worked for so many years and I was talking to friends about something and then these people came up and I was like, I don't work here. This is not a tour. Um, but uh, but we're just, we are, you're exactly right. We, we become trained to speak in a certain way. And I use that, like somebody actually was at CMA recently and they saw some of the labels and they were like, did you write those? Because it sounded like your tour, your TikToks. And I was like, yeah, I did. Um, but but what's hard, of course, is that even that kind of interaction, I've, I've since learned, um, can be very hard for people. You know, that that feels to some people like, like you're excluding people. Because like you and I clearly both come, my godmother was, my parents didn't go to museums, but my godmother used to take me. For a lot of people, it feels very uncomfortable to have a guard, to have a docent, all of these things we're talking about are human intercessions with art, right? And people need a human because the art alone can be scary. But then all of these humans we're talking about can be scary too. Because I want to get into your TikTok, but it's actually yeah. interesting you say that because that's pretty much why I started with my podcast pretty much my podcast before I started interviewing people was just me explaining art because I would you know talk about bring my friend to a show and sometimes they'd be a little bit uncomfortable like they'd be like well, I don't know what's going on here there's a lot of people like they don't know what to ask they don't want to sound stupid and then I started like freelance writing and my friends would read it and be like I don't get it right but it's like should I get this should I like or should I not get this like and it's fine if I but it, you know there's like an assumption like you don't understand it or like you know when someone says like an artist's name it's okay to say I don't know who that is because like you shouldn't know every artist. But then um, I started going into like making TikTok videos, right? Cause I thought like mm -hmm. short videos. I gotta I tell you, I love and that. And like, I'm it's, it's just like, I wanna ask you even about like when you read your comments, cause the video I put up about the New Orleans Museum, mm -hmm. um, the, mm -hmm. like I went for the curator, yeah. there was two people. There was people who worked in the art world who were talking about her experience and kind of just going both sides. Mm -hmm. And then there was people who were African-American might be from New Orleans or just in just from America mm -hmm. and had a lot of issues with it. And I thought it was interesting to have these two uh, like oppositions in a whole like cohesive space. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Never having this conversation at a museum or, or you know, any other Absolutely. space. Absolutely. I did a video about there was all there's a, there was like a spate of guard problems in museums, like kind of around the same time. One of them was a guard at the National Gallery. And I think the National Gallery has one of the best directors in the country. I think Caitlin Feldman is very, very bright. Um, but he stopped a woman who was uh, disabled from having her emergency pack backpack because it was like leather and it didn't look like, like it didn't say emergency on it or something. And then there was that situation at the Portland Art Museum, uh, Portland Museum of Art, uh, where a native woman was not allowed to keep her son in a native backpack. And then um, there was a situation in Cambodia where uh, in the Cambodian galleries at the Met where they, somebody was trying to pray without their shoes on. And I made some videos about that. And so many non-museum pros took me to task. Um, but what I said was in all of them, you have to remember that many of these guards have not been trained, will get in trouble um, and often are have no authority whatsoever. 
So they have a lot of responsibility, no authority. And people just laid into me about it. And what I found really interesting is that almost none of them are museum, not a museum. No, I don't have a lot of museum people who follow to comment. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't put that I have worked in museums and I don't like know if people know. And I don't usually, usually talk about museums even. Like, I feel like I sometimes like, you know, like I like don't like the Cleveland Museum of Art thing that happened the other day. I, I didn't, I'm not going to do a video about it. I was like, I, this is a little too close to home. Um, but to me, what I, it's exactly what you said. I am so glad that I did these TikToks because what I actually saw was the other side of that. And I saw in that situation, particularly that this idea, and that's where I started really thinking about the police culture of museums. That a lot of people said, yeah, sure, that person might be bad, but, or that person chose that job. And I know guards who definitely did that. They chose their job so they could, they could boss people around. You know, or, um, and then they said, you know, um, like a lot of the things that I kind of thought were norms in museums, a lot of people have the, like the opposite side to that. And I definitely didn't know that. Not to mention, I think one of the things that I thought, a lot of the things I assumed people knew as common knowledge, they really don't about art. Um, and I, I mean, like very simple things, like what are the three primary colors? And like, that's not a, I mean, it's, and it's, it's not intelligence, right? Knowledge has nothing to do with intelligence. Like you just didn't learn it. Like it doesn't matter. And, or, but then there's other things like my, um, my, the person I work for is like a very smart man, very well-educated, went to like fancy schools and stuff. And like, he said something like, I saw one of your videos, it's so highfalutin. And I was like, I, I had to tell you, this isn't highfalutin for museum stuff. I was like, I sound like a normal person on these videos. And it just, it struck me that somebody who, you know, is very accomplished and like, you know, intelligent would find even that tone of voice Stand, like something that would put him off yeah I I think wait, it was funny what you're touching on though because I feel the same way kind of in my own everyday life sometimes my friends will say like I'll use big words and I was like, like racist what words are you using <laughs> like I'm trying to think of like a word like that like I said okay this is a word that I remember since I was like five but like I use the word discombobulated and I'm like, oh, I love that? that word my kids and do I'm, too I make my kids I, use that word I love that word well, I saw um, Clueless when I was little and Cher oh, says it in the yeah. movie. And I remember being like five, being like, I love that word. That's going to be and my all those word. fashions are coming back. They are. Ugh, I was thinking about my Halloween My costume. daughter wanted to get that, um, uh, the Calvin Klein slip dress. And I was like, damn it. I'm, my, my girls are bigger than me, but I was like, damn it. I, like, I had that dress. I didn't have the Calvin Klein one. I had this knockoff one um, from the mall. But, um, oh, yeah. No, I think that, you know what, uh, so, so I, I have a podcast too, um, and my co-presenter is an artist. Uh, they, they live in New York City, they're Australian, but a photographer who works in um, historic process photography. And we'll be talking sometimes and we'll get like, I don't know, focused on a topic, right? And, sh and then we forget that we haven't actually defined anything. It's because we live in this, the other thing about the art world is that we're in this like kind of bubble where things like, and there's lots of words that like, I don't know what it was just recently. My, um, my friends were around and my husband and I, my husband had been in the art world too. He'd worked in museums. That's where we met. And we were talking about something and everyone was like, you know what? We don't know what you're talking about. Like, we don't know any of these words. And it, it was just like, it was like, maybe I don't even know what we were talking about, like installation, mount making. I don't know. There wasn't anything that seemed that complicated. I mean, I think I've even just been conditioned to, um, some of my friends will say that I'll say a sentence and I'll re-explain it. Yes, I do that too. <laughs> and the thing is that um, when I first started freelance writing, a lot of people I would pitch to would ask me to give some explanation on like yeah. African like African American history yeah. and then get into it so there's always like I feel like I'm like this blah 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 but so this is how it actually all comes together and then it's like and I'm just talking in this like just cool context Absolutely. of like it's complicated and then like I gotta simplify it for you yeah. and so I'm like, I know I know what that word means I know what you're saying I got it and I'm like oh my bad I didn't I'm not doing this is not like to you but it's, I have to do it when I'm pitching the people and they always want me yeah, to explain right. but you also do it in the galleries like if you were listening like, yeah. or you're teaching you I, but I think that is 
it is both the power, like, you know, you were saying at the beginning about you making your choices. And people often ask me, and sometimes I'll be bitter about, like something will happen in museums and I'll see like an article about somebody I know. And I, I sometimes will be bitter and somebody would ask me like, should I go into art history? And I'll say no, but I'm glad I went into art history. It made us, it makes you, that's a good thinker, right? That you can, you can switch gears that quickly in the same sentence. That makes us, like, there is something very powerful about being able to translate visuals into text for multiple audiences. And like, pe most people can't. I am astonished every day in my job at how people have visuals, like, make, they cannot, they do not. They're like, oh, huh. I was like, that picture reads like this. Oh, huh. Even just like critical thinking, I tell people all the time, like, I'll, I'll say something and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, like, I totally understand. I didn't like see it like that. Like, how'd you, like, it was so clear. And I'm like, imagine spending three hours staring at art and you just have to figure out what's going on with three other people. Like, I was like, that's what you're doing. Like, I'm sitting there, like, you can't, there's no, like, right answer. Literally, like, you say a sentence and someone's going to, like, ping pong that and, like, start either going to be like, are you sure? Because, and then pull it back in. So I always say that, like, if I'm ready to, like, have a discussion, I'm always, like, in for, like, more information. Yeah. But I also did a presentation when I was, um, like, interning in the summer, like, when I was 18. And it was, like, why major in art history? And I had all these quotes of why our history is a terrible degree and you can't do anything with it. And I was like, imagine like when someone majors on history, it's like, there's a reason. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm like, someone's passionate and they like can communicate. Mm -hmm. And like those skills obviously go into way other different mm -hmm. careers, but is that monetary value? It's like, it what do you do? That's the first thing I'm going like I'm I'm gonna be an art historian because like I'm gonna be a doctor. I am going to be yeah. a financial analyst. Like every major has like a word, and I think if the word can't automatically right. go career field it's like oh that's so right. you know what's your it's, I have people ask me that like what are you gonna no you that's right but you know what's funny is like like I talk to people I mean my new job I talk to people all the day, time and I'm like that doesn't seem like a job either you know like like if you think about like if you thought about it's just because we have decided that that has more monetary value right like that that you're I'm explaining something that has been on earth basically since humans decided to live together in settled communities you are and i mean i don't i don't want to i don't want to um, negate anybody's job but like you know there's so many things that people do like ha you know like i don't know marketing pr like pr is a great example like you're just sending stuff to people and hoping they're posting it now i think pr is important I, I, it's not necessarily anything is it's not that any of those things are unimportant it's that we've decided that's important and this isn't um, but you know, you also said something else that I was, I was thinking about is that it is the critical thinking. It is that we are taught a kind of critical thinking because art touches every field. You know, like, I, I mean, I, I know people always are like, oh, you know so much. I was like, I'm really, like, I'm old and I taught, I taught art history 101 for like 20 years, right? Like that, I learned it. But like, actually, the bigger thing is that when you you know, when you work on a paper, when you talk about like an artwork and um, like I was just looking at somebody we know just saw Kahinde Wiley just did this work that looks like, does it look like Washington, the one that Frank Aridi posted? I'm going to ask my husband. No, it's, um, it's the Raft, the Raft of the Medusa. Nope. Wrong again. What it's is it? It's the Copley one, Watson and the oh, Shark. Oh, Watson and the Shark. Sorry. I always get all those boat questions. <laughs> I have a really hard time with the three. I don't. I, I don't even look at art. What can I say? No, I have a really hard time with these three paintings. Watson and the Shark, The Raft of the Medusa. And I took a whole course on Jericho. I should know which one's which. And Watching and Crossing the Delaware. For some reason, the three boat ones always get confused in my brain. The names of them. I know which one is which. But um, Kahinde Wiley did one of that. And... Um, my husband and I were like debating it. And I do bet I would guess that you also have this thing where you would like want your you want to tell your interpretation, you want to hear others, and then you also want to be <laughs> I also want to be right. And so um, but I was thinking about that because we were standing there and like you have to know all of these things, right? Like there are many aspects to this. Like we were debating like whether Kahinde Wiley's worship did what Kahinde Wiley's worship did and what this did. So I have to know process, you have to know 
like our friend who posted it is a really amazing realist art artist in Cleveland, Frank Aridi. He was on our podcast, my podcast. And um, he like, so I, I wanted to know the details he did because he's a realist painter. So he's showing a realist painting and then, um, you know, about Watson and the shark and then the original painting because he had gotten to see this in DC. And so he was like seeing it where it's shown. And then uh, the this sort of history of boat painting. I mean, I, I'm telling you things, you know, but for your listeners, I think one of the things that's happening is that for an art historian, we have to accrue so much knowledge from so many tangential fields that like, you know, like research, like research and culling information and putting it into 100 words is an incredibly hard skill. You know, yeah. I, I I think now I don't think about it. like in my head I'm like I like it's like I love doing that right. But I think yeah, me I, too. People find it like crazy. Like they're just yeah. like I, I talk about like or I talk about when I write. I'll say how many words I'm writing, and I'm like it's only like 2,500 words. Oh, I know. Like, it's like I know. Hour. and my friends be like what I'm like you don't because in my head I'm always thinking about that but I I also think when I think about when people make career path or choices and they pick art history or they pick something that's not like that a lot of just like you know we're in it like consumerism um, I mean like mm -hmm. capitalism it has to do with like it's getting from point a to point b mm -hmm.